Photosynthesis is the process through which trees and other plant life feed themselves. Put simply, the trees, often via their leaves, absorb light emitted by the sun via chlorophyll, located in their chloroplasts. So in addition to giving leaves their green hues, chlorophyll is what allows the tree to capture sun-derived photons and tuck them away within their cells for later utilization. That energy is then used to split water molecules collected by the tree's roots and other surfaces into hydrogen and oxygen. That hydrogen is combined with carbon dioxide in the air, which is there because animals exhale it, which it absorbs through its leaves. And that combination creates sugar, which the tree consumes to survive. It creates their bark, leaves, woody fibers, and so on. That extra leftover oxygen molecule though only really just a byproduct of this self-serving process that the trees perform to keep themselves growing and spreading and repairing damage inflicted upon them by the weather and by animals, is vital for our atmospheric balance. It keeps our oxygen levels equalized, which is important for we animals who need oxygen if we want to survive. There's a beautiful rhythm in this. The idea that as we exhale, the plants around us inhale, and vice versa. But it's just one of many interconnected systems found in nature, where creatures evolve to take advantage of what other creatures are doing in a multifaceted back-and-forth-and-back-again competition that, over time at least, keeps things in an ever-evolving balance. Look in any direction at any resource produced or consumed by any portion of our global ecosystem, and you will find connections of this kind. There are numerous efforts, existing and planned, currently or intending to blanket tree-free areas with carbon sink trees that can absorb, on average, around 48 pounds of CO2 from the atmosphere per year. Old strip mines, fallow croplands, dead or dying towns, these are potential sites of a near-future natural carbon sink, a forest soaking up CO2, helping ameliorate, even just a little, some of the issues that we're currently facing as greenhouse gases distort our norms, causing uncomfortable new realities to take shape as a result of this new imbalance. Which, as solutions go, is pretty cool. And maybe even a little obvious. Why not just plant a bunch of trees to soak up all these emissions that we're trying to get rid of? Seems almost too easy. The trouble here is that trees are an imperfect, if still quite helpful, tool in this regard. Trees do soak up CO2 over the course of their lives, but they have a hard limit that they reach at around 40 years old. And after that, as rot begins to set in, they can release some of those gases that they've accumulated back into the air. Some of that carbon is tucked away in the soil, for all intents and purposes buried, either in the microorganisms that live down there or in the organic dead matter that eventually becomes fossil fuels if they stay buried and compressed long enough. But often, these hidden stockpiles of gas will be released due to shifts in the soil or changes in the temperature, as is the case with melting permafrost in newly warmed portions of Russia and Canada today. 
Trees and other plants, then, can be part of one possible method of reducing the factors that expedite climate change, but they're unlikely to serve as a sole solution, even if we did manage to plant them on a scale that would allow us to achieve the reductions required by the Kyoto Climate Protocol, which would require planting trees across an area the size of Texas every 30 years, and that would only allow the U.S. to offset their own emissions. It's not a solution that the whole world could bet on, and also it's not sustainable over time as there is only so much land upon which to plant these types of forests. Because of these shortcomings, other methods of carbon capture and sequestration have been proposed and built, ranging from the simple to the massively complex. One of the most popular options, at the moment at least, is some permutation of a method that would allow CO2 to be soaked up at the source, be it a coal power plant or in the air over a peat bog, so those gases could be captured before they become part of the larger atmospheric mix. Those captured gases could then be buried in abandoned gas wells, compressed and stored in containers, or rendered chemically inert and turned into some kind of solid waste material, perhaps making them into something useful, like bricks, in the process. There are a lot of ideas in this space right now, but not a lot of surefire solutions. What I want to talk about today is what happens if and when we find something that works. Some kind of carbon capture and storage option, or some other method that allows us to ameliorate or utilize these gas emissions in a consistent, sustainable, less harmful way that scales up and helps us reduce the harm that can result from climate change on this scale. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from National Geographic, and it's entitled Floating Cities Could Ease the World's Housing Crunch, the United Nations Says. This was a piece that seems to have been the consequence of a very successful press release by the United Nations and an organization called Oceanics, a nonprofit group made up of people and entities with engineering, design, architectural, and educational backgrounds working together to come up with plans for building floating cities. These cities would be brought into being to create new livable spaces for humans and society as sea levels rise while also, hopefully, providing clean and affordable energy, clean water and sanitation, reducing hunger through a variety of means and methods, and creating systems of responsible consumption and production. Now, I say this seems to have been the consequence of a successful PR campaign, in part because Oceanics's website seems to be, as of the day I'm recording this at least, just an image of a Settlers of Catan board-looking computer-generated image of what purports to be some kind of floating city plan, along with a handful of paragraphs of vague copy, mostly parroting some of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. It also links to the official entities that are supposedly involved in some way with this nonprofit schools and studios and engineering firms. Now, if I sound skeptical, it's because I am. And that's partly because I love the idea of floating cities, of seasteading, as it's sometimes called, of technologies that allow us to build new sorts of closed loop ecosystems. And as a consequence, I think it's important that I'm even more dubious than usual about these sorts of things to counter that bias. But I'm also holding back my enthusiasm a bit because there's just not a lot to go on here. We do have some info. 
which was provided to some of the publications that reported on this press release. A couple of paragraphs from Wired Magazine do a good job of outlining the project, giving a lot more specifics than the nonprofit's website does. From that piece, quote, Oceanic City was designed by the renowned Danish architect Björk Ingels, along with dozens of experts from institutions like the United Nations and MIT. According to Ingels, who lives in a houseboat himself, residents of the floating city will use 100% renewable energy, eat only plant-based food, produce zero waste, and provide housing affordable to all, not just the rich. Although most cities struggle to hit even a handful of these goals, Ingalls and Collins were confident that they could be accomplished in the challenging oceanic environment. At the core of Oceanic City is a four-and-a-half-acre hexagonal floating platform that is meant to host up to 300 people. These platforms are modular, meaning they can be linked to form larger communities as they tessellate across the surface of the ocean. Each platform will be anchored to the ocean floor using bio-rock, a material that is harder than concrete and can be grown using minerals found in the ocean, which could make the anchor more secure over time. These anchors might also serve as the seeds of artificial reefs to rejuvenate aquatic ecosystems around the floating city." End quote. There are a lot of good intentions there, and it's notable that Oceanics is run by a man named Mark Collins, who is the co-founder of Blue Frontiers, a seasteading company that intends to build artificial island homes, offices, resorts, and so on, primarily for rich people. And he's also the former Minister of Tourism for French Polynesia, which tells us that this is maybe a project with more credibility than one just slapped together randomly by people who have not been thinking about this issue for a while. But it could also serve as justification for concern, since we haven't seen the well-moneyed version of this dream yet, and almost always the high-end model of a new technology comes first, followed later by more accessible egalitarian versions of the same, once the quirks and kinks have been worked out and economies of scale have been achieved, lowering the prices on new technologies and manufacturing processes. And make no mistake, this is new technology. A slew of new technologies, in fact. They breeze past this in that article, and in almost every mention of the project that emerged from this press blitz. But this is all new stuff. There are no functioning sea-based cities yet. And that the would-be creators of this project are confident that they can do it is great. But it's also practically meaningless. We do not have 100% renewable energy anywhere in the world, not on a permanent basis at least, as of mid-2019. We do not have many zero-waste sites either, much less in affordable areas. And that's up on land, where things are relatively easy. Trying to do anything atop the ocean, where environmental and weather conditions fluctuate differently, with different extremes and impacts on infrastructure. It's pure salesmanship to claim that we are any closer to this version of a non-standard utopia than we are to having a full-time base that does the same up on the moon. Both of which, living on the ocean and up on the moon and on other planets and elsewhere in space, I should note, are all possible, and perhaps even likely, eventually. But right now, we can see how it might be done, and we have a lot of the pieces in place. We do not, though, have any examples of it happening previously, in its totality, so we cannot make even informed guesstimates that are anywhere near 100% certain. There is big potential in this space, though, and if someone, maybe a corporation, maybe a government, or a metanational entity like the UN, if someone could make it work, 
it would open up a lot of options, especially if the development is open and accessible, a modular framework upon which others can build rather than a closed system. What that could involve is, instead of trying to build a whole city privately, is instead developing building standards and construction regulations, like you have for buildings, to make sure that what you're constructing, what you're trying to cobble together, does not break under extreme stresses that it might experience. You can do tests and experiments that ensure that you know which chemicals do what, which materials are best for which components of which sorts of floating buildings. You could put together these sorts of regulations and this sort of data and a variety of pre-made templates and make them all available for open use. This collection of standards could then be made available so that should they choose, other entities could get involved, could use that framework to make their own version of a simple building, a fancy house, or whatever else, all suitable for connection with other modular pieces of this floating city framework. IKEA, for instance, could take that template and start making their own branded modular pieces of floating buildings, of floating gardens, of boat parking spaces, of floating city streets. Apple could make a floating Apple house or a water-based cellular antenna array. Volkswagen could start producing electrical commuter boats, which would interface perfectly with the waterproof charging stations that autonomously park the boat upon arrival and which automatically charge them when they get within range. Using the wind and water turbine charged batteries, which themselves are kept topped up by the many sorts of connected green energy sources, and which then distribute energy as needed to your house, to your boat, to other nearby floating platforms, maybe for free, or maybe for a small fee, or perhaps based on a floating city-specific credit system that each of your platforms agree to when they connect to each other building a temporary or permanent neighborhood out on the ocean, but also little micro-economies which can, when necessary, plug into the larger economies of nearby nation-states or the larger global internet-powered economy wirelessly. There are other versions of this potential future, of course, that are based around sea villages that are owned by a single company, which then, like many varieties of condo, village, and sprawling apartment complex kingdoms that have popped up all over the world in recent decades, would allow folks to move in, or buy their way in, and have all the pieces managed by one company, that company owning some of the tech in a proprietary fashion, and perhaps competing with other seastead neighborhoods, buying and selling tech and patents, but not contributing to a shared collection of regulations and standards and open patents. So rather than individuals owning their own little floating house and then plugging into other houses and floating infrastructure when they want, these pieces would be made to go with each other, built as a collection that works perfectly well together, but not in a way that makes them modular enough to plug into the floating island next door. The components would not be interchangeable, and these neighborhoods then would be somewhat balkanized, leading to an entirely different future for roughly the same set of technologies. Now, there are pros and cons to both of these models, but the former seems like the most likely to kick things off in a way that allows more people to participate. The private island approach seems, at least at this moment in history, to be more likely to lead us to a world in which the ultra-rich live on artificial private islands, while the rest of the world deals with the land-based consequences of climate-related flooding and mass migration. Of course, we can't say with any certainty how either path would pan out, much less whether either would even be possible or practical given today's technological, political, and economic realities. It could be, too, that the dream of floating cities does not actually make practical sense, 
Because of ocean-based weather conditions, the costs in money and resources of building and operating these types of platforms, or because there are simply better alternatives, like making better use of existing land-based real estate. The larger context I want to get into here, though, is an issue that seasteading may share with the technologies that I mentioned in the intro, those related to carbon capture and storage, and other solutions that have been proposed to help us deal with the climate change-related environmental and social problems that we face. Whether we're talking about some flavor of climate engineering, like ocean fertilization, which involves introducing various types of nutrients to the surface of the ocean, generally with the intention of stimulating the growth of phytoplankton, which absorbs CO2 from the air, or something like enhanced weathering, which involves crushing rocks and dissolving them on land to create a chemical solution that we typically find when silicate or carbonate materials dissolve in rainwater, a solution that pulls CO2 from the atmosphere naturally to create biocarbonate ions. We might also be talking about building carbon dioxide scrubbers or thermal decomposition facilities for producing biochar, or the aforementioned afforestation, reforestation, and forest restoration mechanisms that would lead to the large-scale planting of trees across the planet. All of these options could potentially, perhaps even almost certainly, fall prey to something called the Shirky Principle. The Shirky Principle is named after the writer and technology and economics thinker, Clay Shirky, who once famously said, quote, institutions will try to preserve the problem to which they are the solution, end quote. A fairly well-known example of the Shirky Principle can be found in the world of tax preparation software here in the United States. Companies like H&R Block and TurboTax sell products that make filing one's taxes easier, or at the very least more intuitive, and tens of millions of users utilize their products each year, with the lower-end products costing around $40, but the average expenditure after additional fees costing users over $100 each tax season. In almost every modern U.S. presidential administration, We have seen efforts to simplify taxes, usually by having the IRS use our income information to fill out our returns for us, sending us a piece of paper or even a postcard with that information on it, and then allowing us to either sign off on it or contest it. Either way, it's a radically simpler approach than the one that we face today, which is bogglingly complex to the point where you cannot help but wonder if someone is intentionally trying to punish us with paperwork and unnecessary bureaucratic nonsense. The efforts to simplify these processes, though, every single time are hamstrung by lobbying efforts performed by Intuit, the makers of TurboTax, and H&R Block. These two companies are doing their best to keep taxes as complicated as possible so that more people will be forced to use their products. They are going out of their way and investing a great deal of money to ensure that the problem they are solving for their customers does not go away. And this makes sense in a kind of cold, heartless way that they would do this, if you think about it. Why would they give up this golden goose so easily? If the scramble to get one's taxes done each year and the accompanying fear and frustration and confusion that goes along with it were to disappear, these companies would take significant hits to their bottom line. We pay them to help us wade through all that nonsense. And if the nonsense were no longer there, far fewer people would pay them. From a purely economic corporate capitalism perspective, then, this is the right choice for them to make. 
From the perspective of not screwing hundreds of millions of people over so you can wring as much money from them as possible, though, it's kind of a douchebag move. It's also, again, an example of the shirky principle at work. We see similar incentives and outcomes in the world of law enforcement and prisons, where there are perverse incentives in place that encourage law enforcement entities and the operators of prisons to give out a lot of tickets, arrest people as often as possible, and lock people up to keep the prison cells filled. A perverse incentive is an incentive that leads to usually unintended but definitely undesirable results. In this case, many police officers are encouraged to stay busy by having their pay tied to their arrest and ticket numbers. Tying their pay to this type of action encourages them to give out unwarranted tickets, make arrests for smaller and smaller infractions, and to generally levy punishments a lot more frequently than they might do otherwise. Prisons, especially private prisons, but not exclusively private prisons, have similar incentives in that they get paid the most when their cells are full. So this industry will often lobby politicians to pass laws that will lead to more and more incarcerations. Alongside those perverse incentives, both of these entities also have their behavior distorted by the Shirky Principle. Because if crime were to ever dry up completely, their jobs would no longer be necessary. Or bare minimum, their industries would be substantially cut back in terms of the number of employees and resources involved in those industries. So it makes sense from their perspective to do what they can to ensure that legislation is passed that will keep more people going to prison, more people committing what are considered to be crimes. By that same logic, anti-terrorist organizations are incentivized to never completely wipe out terrorism. Software companies that sell services for their software are unlikely to ever kill all the glitches and make their products as intuitive as they might otherwise be. Pesticide companies would go out of business if farmers ever managed to naturally alleviate their pest problems. So keeping that imbalance between pests and farmers in place makes good economic sense for them. If there's less war, there are fewer soldiers and weapon companies. If more people have more self-confidence, fewer entities can tap into our self-consciousness to sell us things purported to make us slimmer or more beautiful or more popular. If everyone was healthier, opting for preventative healthcare methods instead of the reactive kind, many medical entities and jobs would disappear, meaning that the smart thing for some healthcare providers and pharmaceutical companies to do, by some standards for the word smart, would be to ensure that we all stay unhealthy forever, so they can keep treating us and selling us drugs forever. Now, this line of reasoning can be a gateway to conspiracy theories, and I want to make very, very clear that just because these incentives are in place, and because it might be economically smart, but morally questionable, for these companies and people to do these things, that doesn't mean that they are doing them. It just means that the possibility is there, and that especially within systems like corporations, which alongside a great many benefits also allows individuals to sideline their own personal moral standards for corporate ones and in many cases being rewarded for doing so, there is a decent chance that this line of reasoning can at least subconsciously influence the decisions that are made by these types of entities. Which brings us back to these floating cities, and what incentives the companies working on them might be acting upon. Such an industry would be heavily reliant on certain things being true, very much including a platform on the ocean that they built being more pleasant or perhaps even more survivable than a home that is perched upon the soil, that is built upon 
the earth, as per the usual. It may be the case, then, that although they have the best of intentions, that they could also become reliant on the existence and perpetuation of climate catastrophe, of rising waters, of polluted soil, and other fairly horrible things of that kind, if they want to maintain their growth trajectory. If they want to keep all those jobs and keep the funding coming in, they need the world to be falling apart around them. So if some solution were to emerge that helped us stabilize the weather, cease oceanic rise, and maybe even reset the climate clock a bit, would it be in this industry's best interest to lobby against that solution, to spread misinformation, to prevent it from happening, to buy up the relevant patents so that nobody could act upon it, to keep the land, the normal earth upon which most of us live today, from becoming reliably habitable again? Even very interesting, very exciting, tech-sexy things, and people who have the best of intentions, can sometimes succumb to the shirky principle and act upon the incentives that it points at if we're not careful. Carbon capture and storage systems would require a lot of excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, meaning that if we ever solved that problem and stabilized the atmosphere in that regard, if we managed to do away with all fossil fuels, got rid of all the stuff that we're burning, these companies would disappear. Their industry would go away almost immediately. And it may be prudent, then, for carbon capture entities to buy up patents that could help humanity solve the climate crisis, to lobby against legislation that would clean up the air, to stifle innovation that could put them out of business. One potential solution for, or at the very least method of diluting the effects of, these sorts of problems might be found in the philosophy of product lifecycle management, which involves figuring out how to design, engineer, manufacture, service, and dispose of a product from the very beginning of its life cycle to the end of its life cycle, before it is even made. This philosophy could conceivably be utilized within companies, systems, and even entire industries as well, giving them a clean way to close their company down if and when the problem they are there to solve is eventually solved. For instance, carbon capture and storage companies could have an end goal in place from the outset, a point at which they would wind down, scale down, or shut down based on concrete metrics of success that they establish ahead of time. This wind-down period could include incentives from investments made along the way or from outside entities, like governments or nonprofits, that encourage those involved to pack up and move on to whatever comes next, rather than doing harmful things to perpetuate their industry or niche. So if your company cures or wipes out the disease for which you have been producing a vaccine, you might receive a substantial cash reward from the government, allowing you to gracefully exit that field or move on to the next problem worth solving, rather than feeling economically incentivized to make sure that you never wipe it out. Such a life cycle design might also involve support systems for employees to ensure that they are not left in a lurch when that problem that they've been working on is finally solved, which would be a bittersweet moment because they succeeded at something that they'd worked very hard to accomplish, but they would also be out of a job, out of a means of supporting themselves, lacking some kind of planned graceful exit. So it seems prudent to consider how they might be rewarded as well, in a way that encourages the solving of problems and creating of valuable things, rather than focusing on rewards that encourage everyone involved to keep those problems around, so that they can continue to be milked for profits in perpetuity. 
there's almost certainly no perfect ideal solution to this issue. And I doubt that there's just one solution that will apply to all situations either. But planning ahead in this way could allow us to more confidently try things out and benefit from the positive outcomes of these models without having to worry about the consequences of toxic incentives, perpetuation for the sake of perpetuation, and the well-meaning but ultimately harmful impacts of entities that succumb to the Shirky Principle. The play that I'd like to recommend today is one that I saw recently here in London, where I'm at at the moment. And I usually don't recommend plays, despite loving them, because they are a little bit tricky to see sometimes, because they are locked into a particular location very often. But this is one that is definitely worth checking out if you get the chance. If you find yourself in London, or if you find this play being presented somewhere else, wherever you happen to be, it's originally from the Steppenwolf production company in Chicago, and now it is at the National Theatre here in London. But if you see it elsewhere, definitely check it out. The play is called Downstate, and I want to read you the summary of it real quick, and then a couple of additional comments on it. The summary from the website is thus. In Downstate, Illinois, four men convicted of sex crimes against minors share a group home where they live out their lives in the shadow of the offenses they committed. A man shows up to confront his childhood abuser, but does he want closure or retribution? This provocative new play zeroes in on the limits of our compassion and what happens when society deems anyone beyond forgiveness. Part of what I loved so much about this play is that it really seemed to exercise my emotions. I found myself empathizing with different people and then finding out something new and then forcefully, dramatically pulling back that empathy and then questioning why I did that. And I don't think I was the only person in the theater who had that experience. The conversation that I heard other people there having afterward indicated that it had been a challenging and difficult subject presented in a way that allowed us to all feel good about having that exercise while also feeling disconcerted about our responses to what was being presented. So the show itself was very, very interesting, but what it causes you to do internally, I think, is the really valuable part here. So if you get the chance, if you find yourself in a city that has a theater presenting the show downstate, I highly recommend giving it a shot. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a list of tour dates and get tickets, if applicable, for the speaking tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com. And you can find my advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on Twitter or Instagram. I am at Colin is my name and just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright and I will talk to you again next week. Mm -hmm.